0: Welcome to the Tej Talks Podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and
1: expert advice every week.
0: Martin, welcome to the Tej Talks Podcast.
1: Hello, Tej. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me to speak today
0: thanks for coming on you know I, I read a ypn magazine which you write in um quite regularly and i always i always read your articles and i'm always like this is really interesting like <laughs> you know let Good. me get let me get this guy on and it's taken me i don't even know like a few months to finally like i keep bending the page that you're on and then i lose the magazine and then i'm like oh okay that was useful um <laughs> so i'm really looking forward to this podcast because people always ask me and just always generally ask you know the world like on Facebook and, and social media like about refurbishments, pricing them up, working with builders, how to write a spec and the whole refurb process seems to be um, a, a bit of a tricky one for investors so we're going to kind of talk through that whole process today but before we do that can you tell everyone like who you are and what you've done?
1: Yeah, brilliant. Um, So, name is Martin Rapley. I I left school uh, back in the mid-80s and went and worked for building contractors. Uh, I was initially um, a trainee quantity surveyor. So, the quantity surveyor is the person who looks after the finances for for each building contracting project. Um, And uh, most of those jobs were in London, did a little bit of new build, but really got more excited about refurbishments and conversions uh, my career took me to some really prestigious buildings in London I've worked in you know, Bank of England stock exchange uh, the tower at canary wolf uh, Victorian Albert Museum British Museum and what I found was that actually I was really excited not so much about the building projects so much but about the the logistics of carrying out some of these projects you can imagine trying to work in a live museum the work itself isn't the complicated bit it's working around the public and and challenges with with noise and things like that and so I drifted into project management and I, I was in a in a number of roles where I was really estimating projects And then managing those projects through on behalf of larger contractors, but got to a point where I was number two in a business. It was a business where I really wanted to be number one, um, couldn't do a deal with the managing director, even though he kept talking about retiring, he never did. So I left that business and set up a complete clone of it in 2012. Um, but my biggest issue in 2012, partly we were coming out of recession, but partly I couldn't get the contracts that I'd had for a while. I couldn't, I hadn't got the the credibility to get back into places like the museums with a new business. I could do it in my own name, but not in a new business. So someone said to me, why don't you go along to some property investing meetings? There's one local to you. They'll want builders. And so off I went to a meeting back in, uh, held down in Chatham in Kent in those days. Um, really waiting to be able to stand up and introduce myself, that little, you know, 20, 30 second slot you get where you can introduce your business, which was exactly what I did. But there were some people there talking about lease options. And my I came out away from that meeting and my head was just buzzing with these ideas of what you could do with lease options, which I'd never ever heard of before and, and you know didn't make mean anything to me at the time. Um, And so that's kind of what happened. I started getting a bit of an interest in property investing, but importantly, I started picking up clients that needed me as a building contractor. But it wasn't long before I realized that a lot of those clients really didn't know what they were trying to do. Um, Some of them had even bought the wrong property, in my opinion. They paid too much or they'd, they'd not understood the conversion process. And this is the early days of HMOs, really. We were just starting to do HMOs back then. And they were expecting me to know all about HMOs. And I'm thinking, I'm a builder. Why do I need to know about HMOs? And it, and this all kind of just settled with me. And then I'd had a couple of bad trading months where I'd really struggled to get work for the building business. And I just said, you know, I think I'm just going to switch from being a builder and managing a building business to being a consultant for property investors. And so in 2013, I I enrolled on some of the PIN training courses um initially to find out what property investors were taught about refurbishment. Because I thought if I if I know what they're being taught, I can plug up the gaps. Well, of course, what I found from that course and loads of other courses since is there's no there's there's very, very little training on the refurbishment process. Um, so I realized there was a there was a, a niche for what I what I wanted to do and that's kind of the the niche I started to fill initially um, so I, I did a 12-month mastermind with Simon Zucchia at, at Mastermind, which was partly to get my wife out of her job, partly to get me involved and meet property investors, but of course, learn about property investing. So now I, I bring property investing knowledge to construction knowledge um, and, and, and actually a little bit of business development in there as well, because I've done some of that you know, additional training as well. So. Um, my passion is still refurbishment. I do do some new build. Passion is really helping others get their refurbishments and new builds over the line successfully. But I've got a portfolio in Kent, some flats and some uh, some HMOs. Um, so kind of doing doing what I'm talking about, but most of the time still doing refurbishments and yeah, you know, either for myself or managing for other people.
0: Amazing. And am I right in saying you have? Sort of been active in about 500 or more refurbs?
1: Oh, well, without any doubt, yes, when I was working as a contractor, particularly you know, we, we had some contracts where our clients were the uh, the local authority. so we'd get you know we could easily get over a hundred in, in a year. So yeah, 500 plus you know, loads and loads and loads. And even if I look back in things I've been involved with for the last year, I would say it's probably I'm probably close to a hundred that I've been involved with this year. Some I've managed, some I've just been on the end of the phone to help property investors manage for themselves, but I've kind of had an involvement in them. Yeah, so, fantastic. Yeah, Got the right man then. Growing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you yeah. know, before um, when we spoke last time, you mentioned before I kind of get into my questions, you mentioned that uh, you had like, was it kind of four key. Steps or points that kind of lead to a
1: successful refurb yes, so so when it, when I first met property investors and got involved with property investors, I had to kind of turn my knowledge, my construction knowledge into something that was meaningful for property investors. I wanted to remove all of the jargon and 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 try and simplify it a little bit. But I got to a point where I'm thinking, I I really thought long and hard about what is it that makes things go successfully. And there's loads of things that make a successful project, but there's really four things that stand out above all of them. And the first one is a a good appraisal. Um, And that really comes back to what I touched on earlier on, is that I still see an awful lot of people buying the wrong property because they haven't done a thorough appraisal or they've fiddled the numbers to prove that there's a deal, or they haven't actually understood the complexity of the conversion they want to do and what the cost might be. So, uh, and, and, and in reality, unfortunately, if you've bought the wrong property, you're really going to struggle to turn it around from the refurbishment perspective. Because at that point, I see investors trying to do deals with builders, taking on builders that are far too cheap and can't produce the quality they end up cutting corners, they don't produce the, the quality property. And of course, that just affects revaluation later on, or refinance later on, or, you know, or whatever. So I think the appraisal is is the first thing to get right. The second thing to get right is a, 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 is a document called a specification or a schedule of works, you might hear it called a scope of works, a spec, it's all the same thing. And it's all about writing down what you want to do with the property um, so that um, everyone who's involved in that project knows what the intention is. Um, And and just by writing it down yourself, you'll start to realise that perhaps you need to do some more research. It might be you start thinking, well, actually, how how much space do I need in my HMO kitchen? Um, And and, uh, as a result, you do some research onto the HMO regs and you understand that. And then you might think, well, actually, now how does all of that fit in the space I've got? So you might go to one of the merchants and they'll do you some floor plans. But by thinking about it nice and early, you'll get clarity what you want. Then, of course, any business partner you're working with will have clarity. Anyone you might be borrowing funds from will have clarity as to what you're going to do with those funds. And importantly, when you send that document to some builders, all of the builders are pricing exactly the same job, which for some property investors is an amazing experience when they get reasonably comparable prices for their jobs because, uh, yeah, as I say, they've just never realised that you that it is possible. So that's the second thing. The third thing, without any doubt, you do need a good builder. And uh, I, I often say in property investing circles, we share our knowledge widely. But if you go to a property investor and ask them for the name and address of their best builder, they suddenly won't know that because, because – those property investors know that once you've got a good builder, you want to hold on to them, and and so when I'm looking for builders, and I'm always looking for builders, and and, and any builders that come to me, yeah, I, I'll give them an opportunity to price projects. I'm looking for reasons not to employ builders, so I, I want to know that the builder that I am employing, I've I've built a good relationship with. They've managed to make all the any appointments on time. They've been, you know, they've been um yeah sensible about their their quotation they've asked realistic questions rather than stupid questions and and i i've got this view that if if i if i'm not happy with the way i'm working with a builder in the lead up to a project let's say whilst we're getting some quotes then why should i put up with working with them for the next four months or so on a refurbishment if we if we didn't get it off the ground very early on the the likelihood is that refurbishment projects going to go wrong because there will be challenges and issues on the job and if you've got a good relationship with your good builder you'll get around those so so find good builders look after good builders they'll become part of your expert team um keep them on their toes without any doubt you know challenge challenge their prices get them to review things but you'll get to a point where they'll be doing all sorts of bits for you relatively yeah, economically, particularly you know, if you're doing projects with, with a builder and then you get a little problem on a, on an occupied HMO, you'll suddenly find they'll run around and fix the front door and not even charge you for it. So don't look to employ builders based on price, look to build, employ builders based on the relationship and the rapport you've got with them, because that will get you over so many more challenges than price ever will do. And then the fourth tip I, I see is comes down to managing the project. Who is managing the project? If it's you as an investor, have you got the time to manage it? Or actually, are you ma- managing another business elsewhere? Have you got other interests that you, that you would rather do? Um, you do need some time to manage projects. So if you haven't got that time, then look to outsource that to someone who can help you. Perhaps you haven't got the skills to, to manage it and you, you need to learn some skills as to what management is all about and also some of the technical elements of construction so that when builders are talking to you, you do generally understand what you know, what what they're going on about. So, so consider who is managing the project and the management starts really from day one, the day you start to think about buying a property all the way through to the point that you've got Uh, you're going to be moving some tenants in and there's there's a number of different aspects in there all the bit to do with the purchase and of course all the bit to do with the construction in the middle and all the bit to do with furniture and and staging and and putting in tenants or selling at, at the end so there's several different skill sets in there that you need and and I see a lot of property investors that are actually trying to do the whole lot And they're struggling at the whole lot, whereas really they do far better outsourcing some or all of it and going off and finding another cracking deal because they'll make more profit on the next deal than they'll save trying to do too much on their own on the refurbishments they've got. Um, And I would generally say that if you employ a project manager, you will recover the cost of that project manager. Not necessarily so much directly. You won't necessarily see that cost come back directly. But you'll find that the project is generally completed that much quicker, potentially to a slightly higher standard, um, and certainly with an awful lot less stress and hassle along the way, which, of course, is worth something. So there are four kind of tips to have some real success. There's loads of other things that would help improve, and they're the kinds of things I write about in YPM magazine. But if you get those four right, you are well on the way to a successful project.
0: Fantastic. Now, let's let's kind of delve into that. So what I want to do is the questions I'm going to ask you are going to kind of take us and the listeners from, you know, walking into the house on a viewing to then kind of, you know, getting the job finished and how to manage it along. So really going into those four points that you mentioned, because there's so much within those four points. Right. So I want to kind of flesh it out. So, right. I'm a property investor. Uh, I walk you know i mean i'm walking into a house you know naturally it's probably not in the best condition um can you talk us through like what people should be maybe looking for in particular or like what things they should have on a checklist to ensure that they don't buy the wrong property like you were saying earlier
1: yeah sure so so i think you you, t- you said a keyword there you had a, you said checklist and it is about having a checklist and, the, and build and develop that checklist. The first one won't be the best, but Mark two will be better, and Mark three will be better than that. And you'll, you can grow this checklist, and you'll learn from things that, yeah, that you see uh, in property to, to check in future. I think my, my my golden rule here is you need to look beyond the decoration and the carpet and the paint colour and the pink bathroom suite and all of that stuff because. In the average refurbishment, we're stripping out all of that in the first place. So it doesn't matter what colour the bathroom suite is. Now we know it's not going to stay there. Where where you really want to be looking a little bit deeper is into things like the structure. Um, You want to be looking for structural cracks, because if there's structural movement, you may well need to get an engineer to give you some advice on that. You want to be looking for things like damp and timber decay. And again, likewise, you may need to get an expert to come and Give you some advice with that. Have a look at the electrics and the age of the electrics. If it's still got rewirable fuses, you absolutely know that you've got to rewire the property. Whereas if it's got a modern fuse board, you may not need to rewire the whole of the property. Have a have a look at the outside of the property. Look for roof uh, damage. Um, Look for flat roofs that probably are getting near the end of their life. Um, Look for Look on the outside for things like paths that are above the damp course and could cause some kind of challenge later on. And then finally, really, just have a look at how that property would reconfigure for what you want it for. And and particularly, if you want to be removing walls, see if you can establish if they're likely to be structurally load-bearing walls. Now, you may not be able to do that, but even getting some photos of that yeah, there's other people that are around the networking scenes that will help you and give you some advice on things like that. So yeah, ignore all the wallpaper, ignore the flowery carpet, look at the structure because it's the structure where you're going to spend your money really.
0: Mm. And when it comes to structure, like there's obviously there's ways to tell if you know what is you know what's causing something, but generally speaking, you know I think most investors. Maybe not the ones listening now, but a lot of investors like see a crack and that's it. They walk out the house, it's over. In your opinion, is there opportunity in structural issues to an extent?
1: Absolutely. I love structural issues because any structural issue potentially makes the property unmortgageable. And of course, that then sees off most of the residential purchases. Because they, of course, generally need a mortgage to purchase. As property investors, we're aware of of other means to purchase things like exchange with delayed completion, options, um, and that allows us to grab hold of things with structural defects. Now, the critical thing with structural defects is you need to get a structural engineer. Um, and as soon as you see structural defects, just you know, you've got two options: either walk away from the property, if you're but if you're interested in it, get a structural engineer to look at it. Don't don't waste time guessing what the, the problem might be. Um, there's there's some people that if you send some photos to, they'd probably give you a bit of a steer. But generally, you're only going to know the full extent of that repair by getting an engineer involved. And that engineer won't just give you a, a, a cause of the problem. They'll, they'll tell you how to repair the, the problem and give you a budget for that repair cost. And if necessary, they'll help you manage that repair through if that's something that if it's that extensive, that it needs some some professional support. So I see too many property investors that say, well, there's some cracks, but I'm thinking I'm going to buy it and I'll take a risk. Don't don't take a risk because some cracks can actually be really significant. Others might be just you know, localized, localized problems. The, pro- the cracks to worry about, the ones that you definitely can see go right the way through the walls. So if you can see daylight through your walls, uh, that needs more work. But that is actually a really good opportunity. And I'd say to anyone, you know, if you see structural problems, point them out to estate agents. Make sure the estate agents know that the property is potentially unmortgageable because they'll put it on their details as cash purchase only, and it will see off loads of your competition.
0: Yeah, good tip. And then are there any things, you know, like when people are viewing properties or they're kind of uh, looking at what the refurbishment could be that they might miss? Things like, I don't know, wallpaper hiding, black mortar or like are there common things that you find that people are like ah oh, missed that that's an extra grand or two or three on
1: the refurb yeah the common thing that gets missed which is really hard to find is actually typically you take out the kitchen units and you find there's extensive water damage underneath the kitchen units the kitchen floors potentially failing all the plaster's come off the wall where there's been you know a leak from the washing machine for years and years and of course no one really knows it's going on so that's a really common place to have a look but, uh, but also be a little bit of a detective. If you see signs, let's say you see signs of maybe damp on the front wall, when you go inside the house, look at the corresponding ins- internal wall, you might find that there's a wardrobe in a funny place in a bedroom. And actually, what they've done is they've moved the wardrobe to cover over you know, a, a, a bit of decay. So so look behind the curtains, look behind bits of furniture, particularly if the room doesn't quite feel as though it's laid out in the traditional way. It could be that someone's being clever and is actually covering something up for you um, so that you know, so, so that you know, potential purchasers aren't aware that there is an issue there. So turn into a bit of a detective, find an excuse just to wander back into a room. yeah, you know, Just say, oh, by the way, I just wanted to go back up into that bedroom and just quickly look at that. I couldn't quite get my head around it. Run back up the stairs quickly. Don't let the staging come out with you. Yeah, just look. Run up there quickly. Look behind a curtain. Look behind the, the wardrobe or whatever. And and that's where the things. That's where the problems are going to be because anyone sitting in the house wants to cover up the defects.
0: Yeah, that's a really good tip. A random wardrobe in in a corner that it shouldn't be in could be hiding stuff. I like Absolutely, that. Yeah. Um So you know, right? I've I've gone in the house. I've, I've followed your checklist. I've you know built my own checklist. I've looked for structural things. I've looked for random you know bits of furniture hiding things. You know, how do I then, you know, I'm thinking, you know, let's say I'm new to property, so I don't have any knowledge of of stuff. How do I then sort of go home, price up at least a rough refurb estimate to then be able to know what I can offer?
1: How do I do that? So so some advice for putting prices together is never, ever work on a lump sum price. So just because someone that you've met has converted a three bedroom house into a five bedroom HMO for 40,000 pounds, Ignore that, because unless you know exactly what their property was all about, and yours is the same, £40,000 means nothing. What you really need to do is break it down into a series of tasks. And those typical tasks are, what do we need to do to get the building watertight? So maybe some roof leaks need repairing. Maybe you want to put some new windows in. Maybe you've got some leaky gutters, that kind of thing. Then what do we need to do to reconfigure the layout of the building? And perhaps you can have some walls to move. Um, And then you might well include in that uh, building some new walls to create some additional bedrooms and things like that. So kind of list them all out one at a time and then go through. What are we we going to do? We're going to do new ceilings, new plaster on the walls. We've got some floor repairs to do. Now we're going to put in doors and frames and architraves and skirtings and things like that. And then we're going to put in a kitchen and we're going to put in some bathrooms. And then we're going to decorate and then we're going to redo some electrics or do some electric modifications and some plumbing works and some heating works and some drainage works. And then we're going to do some work on the outside of the property, some external decorating, maybe some new gutters, maybe some paving and patio and perhaps on a bigger property, a, a bike shed or bin store or something like that. So so list through the whole thing reasonably logically and aim to put a realistic price against each item. And of course, it's much easier to put a realistic price against an item that is, you know, re- replace the kitchen, it's quite easy to do a bit of research onto the cost of a kitchen. There's lots of property investors that will happily tell you that they've just bought an HMO kitchen. It costs them £3,000 and, the, and the, the, the tradesman could charge them £1,500 to put it in, say, and there's the information. So it's much easier to get guidance on those individual prices rather than a lump sum. So to get those prices, talk to other investors. Use uh, use trusted investors uh, around the networking events. Be a little bit cautious of some of the stuff on Facebook. There is really good information on Facebook, but unfortunately, there's an, uh, yeah there's quite a lot of error on Facebook as well. Um, the other place, though, you mentioned YPN magazine. Uh, for the last few years, YPN magazine have been breaking down the cost of their refurbishments into Yeah, pretty much individual trade elements. So there's some good information there that you can take. Um, Actually, that breakdown came off the back of me having this conversation with them a few years ago saying you can't just tell investors it's £40,000 to convert a house. You've got to tell them where the money went and what made this one cheaper than £40,000 or more than £40,000. So there's a good resource there and you'll get that just about every single month in YPN. You'll get good indication as to what the cost is of those component parts of the project. And really in writing all of these down this is where that starts to lead into the the um the, the schedule of works the specification because you start to get a feel as to what you need to do to this property to to make it the property you want the you know the the HMO you're converting into or the flats or or or, or just the you know the general refurbishment for flipping.
0: Hmm. Okay. And I mean, you know, at I... so so yeah fine we've we've done we've gone in we've now priced up a a refurb, at least or, or at least a close estimate we've offered you know we're offering on you know so many properties um when is I'll get to sort of how to find them and how to vet them in a bit but when is the right time to start looking for a builder like in the kind of house buying process
1: so so really there's no need to be looking for a builder until you're reasonably happy that the purchase is going through Most local builders are pretty much working project to project. So if you talk to them, let's say, four months before you're buying the building, they're generally not going to be interested. You need to be talking to them probably only really four weeks before the purchase goes through and, and teeing them up to be able to price the project for you. You know, in four weeks time, because anything more than that, and they're generally really not going to be interested in talking to you about it. They want to know about real life projects. And I would certainly say there's you don't gain anything by showing builders properties speculatively. Um, you'll end up falling out with builders if you start showing them properties you don't own um, because they, they just know that they're wasting their time. And builders are busy at the moment and they'll look for any reason not. Not to uh, not to come out and help you anyway.
0: Hmm. Okay, that makes sense. And then, so okay, we've got the now we've got the offer accepted. Where we're four weeks away from it being owned. Everything's going you know smoothly legally. Um, when does that ever happen? But but it is in this case. Um, how do I now find? I guess two parts of this question. How do I firstly like tangibly find a builder, and then how do I vet them to make sure that you know they're gonna do a good job.
1: Yeah. So so as I said, you're not going to find builders per se by going along to property networking events. You there are some builders there, but generally there's not many builders at property networking events. Uh, So you'd need to go to other networking events, you know, some of the breakfast meetings and things like that. But actually, I reckon I've probably got more builders, certainly in the last five, six years by walking around the area where my project is. So so walk around the streets. We all know the first thing a builder does when they start a new project is they get the signboard out the back of the van and they hang it on the gate. They put it in the front window. So that's their marketing. So look for places that have got builders working and and go in and talk to the builders. Builders are are genuinely really good, good at marketing. They like talking. They like showing people what they're doing. And if you meet a builder because they're working in a property nearby. They'll invariably invite you in to show you what they're doing. Now, it might be that all they're doing is just replacing the bathroom and they're not the right builder for you or for this particular project. But you won't have to walk that far at the moment to find builders that will be interested in your type of work and be happy to price at the right time. And of course, you might be able to, you know, when you go in and see the property and they show you what they're doing. You, you might get a feel as to whether they're a builder you want to work with you, you might think well, you know if, if you walk in and it feels like it's a disaster zone and there's yeah dirt and debris everywhere and everyone's shouting and screaming and radio's top volume and no one seems to be in control well that's what i was saying earlier on eliminate those builders if that's not the one for you just eliminate and walk on because when you find the right one you'll really think yeah this is the difference there's a there's, there's a a project going on here. Everyone's got it nicely organised. All the materials nicely stacked up on the side. They, they don't seem to be causing any disruption. Are all just getting on and building, and they were really nice and polite. And they, yeah, you know, when they when they walked me around and they offered me a cup of tea, and I had a look at the mug and it was clean. All of those little things are just really good little indications that you might have found that good builder that you're looking for. Um, and as I say, you might go, be able to go back in the evenings or weekends and speak to a homeowner and get some feedback. You may even be able to go back after the project's finished and look at quality and, thing, and things like that. So uh, I think I still think that's the best way. Of course, if you're working with any professionals, if you're working with project managers, architects, uh, maybe structural engineers, maybe quantity surveyors, they, they'll often be able to give you a steer as to some of the local contractors as well so you know ask them but genuine generally you're not going to get much by asking property investors because they don't like sharing their their yeah
0: and is there a digital way like say if you're 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 sort of investing three hours from home and you know obviously you want to have the time to go and walk around but let's say you kind of you want to have another avenue of finding builders are there other avenues that you'd recommend
1: so you can search on the internet now. Most of the smaller builders, uh, you know, the kinds of yeah you know, two three man band that run around in white vans, most of them won't have any real internet presence. They might have a holding page, um, but probably not much more beyond that. So you're going to find those smaller companies. They're going to be on some of the sites like My Builder, um, Trusted Traders, and you know those kinds of um yeah directory websites. Now be very cautious of those. Um, I found I found good and bad from them. The thing about them is the testimonials as we know are quite easy to manipulate. Um, And you'll often find most of the testimonials are over a two month period four years ago when they first got onto the scheme. Um, So be a little bit careful, do your due diligence of those. But I've genuinely found some good builders from those sites. Um, and, and it really, as I say, all comes back to, particularly at the moment, whilst builders are busy, you've got to be looking and talking talking to a, to a lot. I can very easily start talking to yeah, eight or 10 builders before a project's coming on board to find that only six are actually able to price it. And then I only actually get three prices back because they're so busy at the moment. And and they'll just, say, they'll just say, you know, I haven't got the time to price it or I haven't got the time to do it if I win it. Um, so the more you speak to and the more you know, the better. Uh, you really don't want to get to a point where you've only got one builder you can speak to because the, you only ever met three and two of them have declined to price um, because then you've got no control over it. And, and in situations like that, don't be afraid to start a process again now it might feel as though you're losing and wasting a lot of time, but you'll waste and lose so much more if you've got the wrong builder in the first place, that it's not a bad thing to have a second go at getting you know, another load of prices back in the prices in.
0: Absolutely. So let's say we've, we've found um, the builders, you know, you kind of mentioned, let's say we went on site and we found one, we think, okay, you know, this, this person's different. I want to sort of take this further. Um, are there any kind of particular questions or things you should be like sort of uh, like testing them on sort of in order to vet them?
1: Um, yeah, Yeah, so always start by asking them what kind of work they typically do. So try and do that before you even tell them what your project's all about. Now, you're not necessarily, you don't necessarily need a contractor that's got experience in exactly the same kind of project project as yours. And the common thing now, you know, is we're converting houses into HMOs. You don't need a builder that knows anything about HMOs. You need a good builder because you're the expert. You know what an HMO needs. You know you can sort out a kitchen layout. You know what the regulations are relating to fire doors and fire alarms and things like that. So don't you don't need a builder that knows about HMOs, but you don't want a builder that does significantly different lot so as i touched on before you don't want a builder to refurbish your hmo if all they ever do is bathroom fittings so ask that kind of question now store him away for the day that you need a bathroom refitted um you yeah, know and, and the guys that do kitchens There's there's some builders that always do extensions there's other builders that never do extensions so, so ask around the kind of thing they typically do. What would be their ideal job? And then, as I say, you can just eliminate them for your current job if, if they're not the right ones. Keep in touch with them for future things because obviously other things will come along in the future. So, so that's definitely the first thing to be, to be finding out about. And then really, it all comes back to relationship. If you're feeling that you're having a conversation with them and it feels friendly, but from a business perspective then you're probably talking to a slightly better builder than some of them if, if you can't understand what they're talking about maybe they've got an accent maybe they're just using loads of jargon you don't understand then they're the ones not to work with so look to build a relationship look look to have a chat you know talk about the, the football at the weekend talk about the weather talk about yeah you know, anything really just to Feel as if you could work with this person, because it's only the same as interviewing someone for a job. If you're taking on you know, a new employee, you've only got 30 minutes, 40 minutes or so to find out about that person. So you, what would you do? You find out about their past experience. And then you talk about you know, other bits and pieces to feel if you could work with them. And it's pretty much the same with a builder. What you want to do is you want to have as many touch points with a perspective builder as you can. So you've got this first one to find out some initial stuff. The next touch point might be nothing more than a phone call just to say, oh, just to let you know, I'm emailing all of the details to you tomorrow. And then the next one might be a phone call saying, can we meet on site again so I can show you around? Now, it's every single time you talk to them, you'll get a gut feel as to whether they're the people you want to work with. And then you might walk them around the site, and they might be in and out in two minutes. And, and that could be yeah you know, a sure sign that actually they're not really interested. Or they might turn up an hour late, or they might forget to turn up. And those are the reasons to eliminate them, rather than any technical or difficult questions.
0: Hmm. Okay, I like that. And, um, you know, this might be an obvious question, but when you're... I guess going back a step slightly, when you're looking at their projects or even pictures of their projects, if you're kind of talking about their their kind of portfolio of works, are there certain things like in terms of the finish and quality of their work that you know if someone doesn't know anything about refurbs and they're starting out in the property, like they could look at? Are there obvious things like the the tiling, the grout? Like, are, are, is there anything like that?
1: Um, from pictures it's really hard to tell anything because ultimately anyone is only ever going to show you their best pictures anyway you can't always be a hundred percent sure that the pictures they're showing you were actually done by them themselves they could have been done by subcontractors uh, particularly things like tiling a lot of builders bring in a tiler to do that so it doesn't really demonstrate the quality of their work um, so you're it's far easier to establish quality by seeing the properties live and actually being in the, pro- the properties whilst the work's been going on or or once it's complete. Common things to have a look for. Um, if you can, ha- you want to look to see how smooth the plastering is. That's a really good indication. So, so just stand on the opposite side of a room from the window and look along one of the walls. So that the light's kind of at the end of the, the room. You'll see the quality of the plastering. And that might be an indication on on um, on their on their general quality. You mentioned tiling, Tej. I think I think the thing with tiling is it's often outsourced. Therefore, it's either really good or really bad. If it's really bad, then you know that the, you know you've got a carpenter doing it instead of a tiler. Um, so so that will stand out. But the other thing with tiling is look at how it's been set out. Has it been does it look as though it's been thought about so by that i mean um have a look at is there say a nice straight grout line immediately behind the central pillar taps or is it slightly off center and therefore slightly jarring because if you it's a good thing for yourself if you can get those kinds of things nice and smart it will just lift the quality of your property without you spending any more money on it but importantly if it's not in the properties you're seeing that might be an indication that he's just not quite thinking through everything as well as he might do. It's just a little bit slapdash. Um, and, yeah, so, yeah, look for those uh, yeah horrible cut tiles, which are, yeah, a, a few millimetres wide, you know, 10 millimetres wide or so, when it should have been balanced nicer across the wall or something like that.
0: Yeah. Okay, cool. I like that. So that's a, That's something that I think, yeah, a lot of people probably wouldn't look Mm. for would it
1: realize so yeah attention to detail does count for so much
0: yeah no definitely and so now we're at the stage where we've we've got the builder we've asked the questions we've looked at the finish we're like cool we want to engage them um are there any contracts or any agreements in writing that sort of one should have with the builder before sort of starting work
1: yeah absolutely so you'll hear in building um, environments, you'll hear talk of the JCT, which stands for Joint Contract Tribunal. That's a body that's been putting together standard building con- contracts since the nineteen fifties. However, most of the small builders and most of the small projects we're doing they're too they're too cumbersome and they're too big, um, and and in in most projects they don't actually work because you you're they're designed to work with uh, a third party an independent party often a project manager or an architect which of course we don't generally have in smaller refurbishments of, of yeah of, of property investing stock so i i tend to say you don't need to have anything formal but you must have something so think about the things that you need to agree with a builder and get that onto a piece of paper it's really good to agree you know to establish the builder's full name and address, trading name, and and things like that. It's really important that he knows your full name and trading address, particularly as he may well be invoicing a company that holds the property rather than you personally. It's really good to get written down the contract sum. How much are you going to pay the builder for this work he's carrying out? And does that include or exclude VAT? It's good to agree when he's going to start, roughly when he's going to finish and that's a bit of a a moving target but at least talking about it and focusing on it is a good thing it's good to know on what documents his price has been based it could be the schedule of works you put together and a couple of drawings from an architect or something like that it could be that you gave him a kitchen layout as well and that was included in it so that we've got some clarity so um and 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 agree things like um variations if there's a change how's that managed do you need the price from him before he, he'll he actually start it yeah do you need to get involved with that are you can agree that up front what are the payment terms how often are you going to pay him what's or how often are you going to meet him to agree what you're paying and how quickly afterwards are you going to pay him it, all of that stuff if you discuss all of that before the job starts and i typically say you don't even need to be on the site for that go go and have a coffee somewhere Just get the whole lot on a piece of paper. In having that conversation, you'll find that most potential conflicts will come out around the table and you'll find a solution between you. Put it on a piece of paper. By all means, sign the bottom of it or email it so that both of you have got it. But that's as good a contract as you need. As soon as the builder starts, he's deemed to have accepted those terms. Um, But importantly, you'll find that most of your problems go away just by sitting around a table talking about things to make sure there is no slip up later on and that's the way you want to sell it to a builder yeah i'm having this conversation with you now because i don't want this project to go wrong i want to know that you're yeah i'm paying the right party i'm paying you at the right time and we're both looking at it from the same way and that you're not accidentally doing work that i'm not expecting you to do because yeah my business partner's popped around and told you to do something you only take instructions from me because I am the man, the person that's in charge of the bank account, and that kind of stuff. Get that over to them early on, and they'll 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 welcome that kind of conversation because you know as soon as they understand that this is all about making it run smoothly, and making sure they get paid and making sure they get don't get disrupted, then they'll they'll be working a lot. They'll be with you, and they'll be quite happy to to sign those terms
0: okay and um I think I might have missed a step here because we mentioned this a few times and it's about the the specification or the spec or the scope of works for the builder so when it comes to writing that like how much detail should you go into like is it you know to the point where you're like socket here socket here I want this door in this cut like how how, how detail should it be
1: Um, So if you've got some drawings, then that will definitely help you out because that will show you where the doors are going to go and things like that. Um, Typically, you don't feel that you need to tell the builder how to build. They they know how to build a a partition, so don't worry about describing it. It just needs to be build a plasterboard partition or build a partition and and plasterboard and, and plaster it afterwards. So and don't try and use any technical phrases because a lot of the smaller builders don't actually understand the technical phrases anyway. So use the words that you understand and that, that you know that are in you know, gen, general use. I wouldn't go too, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily go in a pricing document down to I want a socket, you know, 400 millimetres from the corner of the room or anything. What I would typically say is I want three double sockets in every bedroom and four in the living room and three in the kitchen, that kind of thing, or for three double sockets, one including USB provision. So, so leave it a little bit yeah, open, but you want to get clarity. And the more clarity you can put in, the better. For instance, do you want plastic sockets or do you want chrome sockets? Do you want brush chrome sockets? Now, they're different prices, and the price is always cheaper if the builder prices it in competition at tender stage than if you change it later on when he's kind of got you over a barrel and you're pretty much in a position where you've got to take it or leave it. And again, that leads to dispute and conflict later on, which you don't want. So slowing down a little bit at the front and getting that detail thought out in in advance will definitely help you later on and importantly you'll get to a point where you don't need to keep micromanaging the builder because he doesn't need to know anything more he's got everything he start when he starts because you've told him what sockets you want maybe you found the range in an electrical company or you just you know, agreed with him what you need and and you've 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 told him what tiles you want and what's going on all the different floors and where to buy the bathroom from and which style of kitchen you want now if you can get all of that into your schedule of works A, you'll get a more accurate price that is less likely to change later on. But B, you will massively save the amount of time you need to get involved in later on managing the project.
0: Hmm. And I think also from my experience anyway with writing specs, it really helps you like understand a refurb. So, you know, like you said, when you come out of a, a property you don't necessarily need to go into that level of detail but when you do it really gets you thinking and walking through the property and understanding that damn some refurbs can cost more than you'd think because of the little little things that you know are not on there um now when it comes to like so you've written the spec the builders you know we've, we've had the meeting builders get kind of getting on with it um how like you said, you don't want to micromanage them. You don't want to tell them how to do their job. But then, uh, quite a broad question, I guess. How do you maintain a good relationship along the build, but also how do you then maintain sort of control and knowing what's happening on site, especially if you live you know, far from where you invest?
1: So, so if you live far from where you invest, that, that is almost that fourth point I was talking about at the beginning where who is managing your project. and and i've got my golden rule if i'm managing a project for any client it's no more than an hour and a half away from my base because i want to know that if something goes adrift i can pretty much get in the car not necessarily immediately but i can find a, a slot very quickly to get there whereas if your site if your project is five hours away that's not easy to jump in the car jump on a train and get there quickly to get involved with it so i'd be I'd I'd start by saying if your project is a long way away from you, then you probably need someone to help you manage it. But if the project's reasonably close to you, I I loosely agree with my builders that I'm going to go and visit the site once a week. I will sometimes visit more frequently, but once a week it will be reasonably set in the diary. So every Tuesday morning, I'll, I'll call in every Tuesday morning or something like that. Now, I might call in on a Thursday afternoon if I happen to be driving nearby and I've been coming on back from something else. So they'll get the odd spot check, but there'll be that formal catch up every Tuesday morning. where builders start to know that actually, if they've got a question, it can wait until Tuesday. It may not be that urgent to phone you up straight away. Or if they've got something that they need you to approve, maybe a sample of something or the layout of the kitchen or something like that. They'll say, oh, we'll look at that on Tuesday when you come down. So it's good practice just to get into that cycle of a regular visit, but also good to do the occasional spur of the moment ad hoc visit. Now, I've had some projects where I haven't even had to visit every week because it's going so smoothly, particularly if you've got a relationship with a good builder and you know they can get on with it. But I've had other projects where I've had to be in there three, four times some weeks because the builders really floundering around Needs extra support. Needs yeah. For me, I find a lot of builders would yeah just benefit from having a regular steer. They can lose their way on some projects, particularly if the property yeah if the project gets a bit bigger. They just need someone that they can talk to more frequently. And yes, you can do that over the phone, but it's far easier yeah have a quick walk around site, have a cup of coffee, and just help them. And 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 don't yeah that that kind of leads me into managing builders. It's not of them and us. they're working on your property if you can help them streamline the process somewhere then then do that don't see it as a bit of a sport that i've left them to get on with it and they're going badly wrong and i'm watching them go badly wrong because it'll only backfire on you in the longer term you know you'll get your property finished that much later on
0: yeah and you know you kind of mentioned before about using a project manager especially if you're further away from home what's the what's the difference or or the benefits or, or not benefits of like having a builder who says you know i project manage all the trades this kind of is how we do it but then you know alternatively having like a sort of third party like just pure project manager
1: yeah so so a builder that manages the trades is is primarily thinking about building that project out his first interests are going to be how do i build this project out whereas a, a project manager that's either yourself or someone you've you've employed to do the role for you is looking at the whole big picture and and is not just looking at yeah, you know, not just managing the day-to-day uh stuff with a builder but looking at When, where do the project, where do the um, materials come from? Where, yeah, when's it going to be finished? What's the budget look like? Um, And I know when I worked for building contractors, and I was effectively, I was a project manager working for a building contractor. I know that if something was going wrong, I was covering my own backside before I was looking after my client. So, so if so, if you're project managing your own job. The builder's project manager, the builder's manager, call them what you like. They are good at getting tradesmen in, working in the right sequence in the right place, dealing with getting materials in, dealing with making sure that um, uh, you, you, you know, making sure that the tradesmen are all interfacing with each other at, at the right time. That's a very different thing from high-level managing the whole scheme. That yeah that that's looking at quality checking building control have been in and signed things off getting involved perhaps with um yeah the HMO officer to see that you're compliant with their side of things um which is which is a higher step than the average builder's project manager and even when i was running my own business and i was kind of offering that service it was it's not a, it's not a normal service for builders to offer. So you will find a few builders that will offer that kind of service, but it's not their normal service. And I would say that what you're looking for is if the person you meet from the building business turns up in a car to see you, they're probably managing lots of tradesmen, and several jobs, and you can expect them to take on more of a project management role. If they turn up in a van, they are definitely out and out builders. Yeah, you know, that's that's a good good benchmark there. But as I say, even those ones that turn up in a car, they are looking after their building business as their first principle, and you need someone who's looking after your business as their first principle.
0: Interesting. I like that. I think that's kind of a an observation that people may not even think of. But actually, yeah, the way you explained it makes a lot of sense. So yeah, that's a really that's a really good tip. Um, so. When it comes to like project management, if you're going to do it yourself or even if you're going to sort of, you know, be the overarching manager above a project manager, is there any particular software that you'd recommend um, to keep on track of uh, with with stuff or to even kind of communicate with your project manager or your builders?
1: Um, Yeah, so I, I got into project management before there was any real bespoke software. So I learned project management using Excel spreadsheets. And, and that was it, really. So even now, I still manage most of my projects using Excel spreadsheets. Or actually, sometimes we use uh, Google Sheets because they're easier to share than, than Excel. But, you know, that kind of thing. And it just becomes a series of schedules. With regard to keeping in touch with the, the tradesmen, the builders, I tend to use whatever they prefer. So some builders will say to me, I like to do everything on WhatsApp, so I'll use that. Others say no, don't want WhatsApp, or what I what I want is an email. Um, so, and because the builders are the ones that are less likely to be tech savvy, I would rather go to what they want to use rather than me impose something upon them that they're not happy with. Now, I've got I, I've you know you may well want some kind of CRM system. Um, you might want a to-do list and things like that. Um, I've, I use Insightly as a CRM system and a project management system. It, it's, it's CRM with a little bit more bolted into it. I've used Insightly for the last five, six years or so. Um, but you kind of go with the one you like. I, I've had some success in the past with Trello. I know a lot of people use Asana. has um, grown massively since I last looked at that, so that might be something to have a look into if you're wanting to be a little bit be a bit more tech but remember that the builders themselves are likely not to be tech savvy so don't impose anything on them that is beyond their you know their ability some of them they've got the smartest smartphone on the market but they still don't use anything more than text message
0: <laughs> yeah that's fair enough that makes sense and then you know going back to an earlier point uh, when you mentioned about like payment schedules with builders. Now, I think obviously there's people out there who've been stung by builders, by well, anyone in, in any profession, of course, but like people who've maybe lost money or paid a lot up front and then the builders disappeared or whatever. What, like, I know, I guess it depends on you and the builder on what you agree, but are there any sort of, I guess, are there any red flags when it comes to them requesting, you know, the payment schedule? And also, you know, is there a recommended sort of way of paying them?
1: Um, so so when I'm having a conversation with any builder, I start with what are considered to be standard uh, payment terms in the construction industry, which is actually we come to site once a month or once every four weeks, we value how much work's being done and we pay you two weeks later. So, so I let that sink in, which, of course, doesn't suit any of these smaller builders and then and then i say but i think on this one we can help you out and where i like to get as many projects as i can is that we are valuing the work they've done every two weeks and we're paying them i typically say within seven days but typically it's within two to three days that's where i like to get to now i've got i i've 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 agreed that with some builders, but agreed that they will get an interim payment the end of the first week just to help them get going. And then I've agreed what I call a deposit in advance of the works. So if if you call it a deposit, what is a deposit? It's a fairly nominal sum that secures your space in their diary, shows commitment and might therefore be a few thousand pounds. Now, if a builder is asking for more than a few thousand pounds in advance, then you've got to ask yourself, am I prepared to lose that in the worst case scenario that they disappear? Now, if you're prepared to lose it, then by all means, pay them more money in advance. But I would generally question if a builder is looking for a large amount of money in advance, um, you know, let's say 10,000 pounds or more the likelihood is they have got cash flow problems already. They're going to use your £10,000 to finish the last job off, and they're not going to finish yours until they've got another job where someone else is going to pay them £10,000. And that's not a good company to be trading with. I've spoken to investors in the past that have paid up to £30,000 in advance to get projects started, and I do know some that have lost that money because the builders have just disappeared with their, with their money. So, I would say you know if you' if you're paying more than five thousand pounds in advance, you know you've really got to question whether they're the right builder. There was a time, you know if you go back six, seven years, you wouldn't have had to pay anything in advance because builders were hungry for work. but now they because builders are busier, they can dictate the terms a bit more and can ask for these deposits. But call it a deposit in your mind, treat it as a deposit. And think about what is a central amount to secure a space in their diary, rather than be front loading all of the funds for them.
0: Absolutely, solid advice. And um, Martin, I was uh, I was on your YouTube channel earlier. Everyone should go and subscribe to that. I'm sure we'll share the details at the end. And um, I saw something, a video you did on build costs increasing. And actually, I was speaking to my build team, and they sent me a link and said, "Yeah, look, a lot of these materials are going up by sort of five, six, seven percent, and then." naturally uh build costs and in terms of labor is going up why is this happening
1: so we we had uh, yeah the the uh the recession 2008 running through into you know, 2011 12 or so and a lot of building a lot of builders went off and did other yeah you know, other careers uh because it de- it hit the construction industry yeah very hard very quickly um, so we've generally got less builders around in the country now than we than we used to. We we were relying on a lot of Eastern European tradesmen for a long time, uh, and yeah, you know, with Brexit, some of those have disappeared back home. And generally, there's a lot more money sloshing around now, so a lot more people are doing building work. And because it's quite difficult to move house and 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 you know, complicated and expensive to move house, loads and loads of house owners. Are doing improvements to their house. Yeah, they're doing that kitchen extension. They're doing that loft conversion. They're doing the garage conversion, and that's taking up the same builders as we're all all trying to use for for our kinds of projects. So, it, it so they are therefore getting that much more busy. Yeah, you know, typical. Yeah, you know, basic economics says if they get busier, they can up their fee. So, that's causing labour prices to raise, to rise without any doubt. When we look at material prices, um, they're starting to rise partly based on economics. Things like anything to do with sound and fire insulation is a real hot topic at the moment. And I'll touch on that again in a mere moment, obviously off the back of Grenfell particularly. So the suppliers of those products are stretched. They're struggling to provide the, the, the volume that's needed. So as, as a result, they um, are increasing their prices. Um, there, yeah, you know, there's an element of shortage of, um, yeah, you know, a lot of building materials, particularly when the government has any kind of initiative to, uh, yeah, you know, home buyer initiatives or, or anything like that. And, and the prices do go up. And of course, the big, the big companies dictate the rules on the prices. So the smaller companies that we're dealing with are always going to be paying slightly higher than the big big companies can negotiate. And then the other massive reason for costs increasing now is that we're tightening up on the requirements of the building regulations. And in fact, coupled with that, we're also tightening up on the requirements for the HMO regulations as well. So as a result, what was a relatively easy conversion, say, into an HMO, you know, six, seven years ago, is now much more expensive. We're expecting to put in grade A fire alarms instead of just some uh, smoke heads in each bedroom, we're expecting to put in an element of sound insulation. We're upgrading the thermal, uh, uh, the, the thermal elements of the external of some of these older properties that we're doing, and that's building regulations that are making us spend more on our on our properties. So, kind of three reasons for prices to be going up and building control is is definitely one of those and 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 the fire element of building control as a result of Grenfell everyone yeah really really reviewed what the what their fire protection was and of course as is natural it's probably gone over the top but no one dare say that they've specified over the top because of course no one wants to wants to be the person that was involved in in the project that you know that, that had the big fire and and lives were lost so you know it's it's a number of number of reasons but you know it, it's follow economics and you'll understand you know, why prices of labor and materials go up and down but building regulations is the third thing that's getting more onerous and I can only see that getting more onerous as we go you know, as we go forwards we're getting stricter and stricter on building regulations and the H- allied hmo regulations with them and I'm sure you know I see all the time, you we know, are on, on forums where investors are talking about how they've been asked to you know, improve and upgrade things to comply with HMO regulations.
0: Mm. Amazing. Martin, thank you so much. I think this podcast has taken people through like you know, the whole journey from viewing a property to managing it to getting it done. And I know for a lot of people who are new in property, and even those who who aren't so new, this will be incredibly useful um and there's lots of little tips you've given throughout that are going to help people make the right decisions um and find the right builders and get refurbs done better so um before we end the podcast uh, i believe you you like you have a book can you also help people with their refurbishments can you just share with people kind of how you help people if if they want to um take the conversation further with you
1: yeah, so there's there's two ways. I've I've got kind of loosely got two businesses. One is all about working with property investors that want to manage their own refurbishments and I can provide one-to-one mentor to help them manage their own refurbishment. And coupled with that, I've got some training courses uh, and the the YouTube uh, page that you've mentioned and we're on Facebook as well. Um, so that that all runs under the umbrella of Refurbishment Masterclass. So have a look for Refurbishment Masterclass on on YouTube. Um, it's on it's on um, Facebook actually as Refurbishment Mastery. And I suspect by early next year everything else will be Refurbishment Mastery because it started off as being a classroom based thing and it's no longer in the classroom, so it's all online. But have a look have a look for Refurbishment Masterclass or Refurbishment Mastery, and you'll see all of that side of the business. And then the other side of the business I've got is the consultancy business. That's where I do budgets and appraisals. I do put together contract documents. I do an element of uh, business development for contractors. And yeah, in there is also the project management. So project management of varying schemes, new builds and refurbishments, sometimes just doing a small element, writing schedules of works, other times managing the whole lot from end to end for yeah some of my clients just don't even want to get involved with it it's pretty much phone call martin take the keys there's another one to get on with and uh see you in 16 weeks time when it finished type stuff so i can offer all of that as well and that all operates under the under the umbrella of helpful property group so uh, two distinct companies doing you know two distinctly different things but all all fronted up by me and then i've got my own property portfolio on the back anyway so uh yeah, kind of i'm doing what i'm what i'm talking about and I'm, I'm, I'm talking and doing for other people way more than I'm doing for myself. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just invest on the side, really. It's not my core core business. Well,
0: wow, fantastic. I will put all the links to your website and your YouTube channel in the show notes for anyone who wants to continue talking to you. But Martin, thank you so much for coming on the Tesh Talks podcast. I really appreciate it.
1: That's all right. It's really good speaking to you, Tesh. Hopefully, we can catch up again soon.
0: If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and
1: YouTube for more great content.